1: We're going to help them extend their reach into 175 countries. On the other hand, the synergy that IBM with our current products are, that those are going to work and you'll be seeing a lot of announcements this summer. All right. Well, that was the voice of Jenny Remetti, the CEO of IBM. Capping, wrapping up, announcing, closing, however you want to call it, Taylor, uh, the biggest acquisition of, in some time, uh, of Red Hat. So we've got our team to break it down for us. Olivia Carvel is technology reporter. She follows IBM. She's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, as is Anurag Rana. He is senior analyst of software and IT services for Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house research service. Welcome to you both. Um, so, Olivia, give us the news. We don't often get so excited about a deal closing, but this is a major deal.
2: This is a huge deal for IBM, and one of the most important things I think we need to remember here is that IBM is a massive company with so many different business offerings. It's been trying to grow in artificial intelligence and cloud for quite some time, and the reason why this is particularly significant for the company is it's actually representing a transformation. They're trying to reinvent themselves into a competitive cloud provider in a pretty fierce landscape going up against giants like Amazon and Google and Microsoft.
3: I'm glad that you brought up the transformation, and I want to bring in Anurag here. And I think my first question is, is it too late? Is this deal even enough?
4: It's probably is the last big effort by the team to make themselves a relevant t- t- technology mm-hmm. over the next 10 years. Um, I don't think it's late enough, largely because bulk of the spending, which is what we call Um, on-premise spending or legacy IT spending. It's still on-premise. It's still not in the cloud. And as those companies move their workloads to the cloud, they need help. And it's usually services companies like IBM who can help them.
1: And so Olivia talk about this sort of culturally for the company, because anytime you talk about a big acquisition, anytime Mm. candidly, you talk about a company as established and I'll say it old (laughs) as IBM and a, and a company that for a, a long time, Red Hat, uh, was it a little bit of a renegade, you know, mm-hmm. the Linux world and open source and all that? How are these two going to fit together?
2: Well, I think that's the big question, is the risks that that poses. Will Red Hat really be able to integrate into IBM, this old school, 108-year-old company that's gone through all these economic booms and busts, and you're trying to bring in a, a company like Red Hat, which has a very different cultural um, workforce and and environment. And I think that's a a big question here is how is that going to go? So we heard from Ginny Remedy earlier this morning saying that Red Hat will remain a distinct unit within IBM. It will keep its headquarters, it will keep its CEO and leadership team, and they will operate their own kind of sales network, um, contracting, terms and conditions in order to try and keep what made Red Hat Red Hat as it folds into the bigger IBM picture.
1: Your take on that, Anurag. Are they going to be able to do
4: it? It's a a tough question, but, you know, frankly, early signs are very positive. Hmm. As when the deal was announced, our biggest take at that point was, if you're going to basically, uh, you know, try to put down IBM's culture onto these guys, it's not going to work. But everything that we have heard over the last six months – Over even the press release today and say they're going to be independent. And the effort is going to be Mm -hmm. actually to work with their competitors, such as Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. Mm -hmm. And that language, you know, is promising on paper. But it's going to take about 12 months or so for us to see some good results out of this. Uh, But we feel optimistic that this thing is going to work.
3: Talk to me about those competitors, right? If I'm a company and I have X percent of dollars to spend on cloud, why would I go to an IBM's Red Hat instead of an Amazon or a Microsoft?
4: So IBM will be an enabler for you to move to Microsoft mm. or Amazon. Amazon and Microsoft really don't have a lot of big army of you know, consultants helping you move that workload. They are providing you the infrastructure. They are providing you the software and capacity to do the workloads. You need services companies, the likes of IBM, Accenture, Tata Consultancy, to move that workload. And if IBM has adopted such an open stance that they would work with all different clouds, Mm -hmm. it should help them. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So, Olivia, they done making deals? Jenny done making deals here? (laughs) you think there's more to come?
2: Um, I feel like maybe down the line there is more to come. But right now, I think the focus for them is trying to integrate Red Hat into the wider IBM family for sure. What why did think? this take so long? That's my question. <laughs> to close? Yeah. Oh, it's actually qu- quicker than what we'd quicker really we had we thought second half, right? Yeah.
1: I mean, like, may- maybe even later in the year, right?
2: I was my, expe- my
4: question is, why didn't they do this 10 years ago? Right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> why, take, yeah. why take so long to do this deal at all, right? Why, why did that? I think we talked I, about I, that I, back in the day. It's
4: the open versus closed mindset of technology companies. Mm. You go back 15, 20 years, everybody wanted to sell the stack from top to bottom, their own product. We saw Microsoft take a U-turn, six—you know what was it—five years ago or so, and said we're going to be completely open. The rest of them are still catching up.
1: Right. It is amazing the the role that Microsoft has played in all this, the transformation. You talk about big transformations across the tech landscape. There are few that, that come to mind other than like the revival of Apple mm-hmm. uh, that really rival that. Right.
2: What about when we look? I think. We're... For me, I think it's really interesting looking at what IBM's attempting here and kind of partnering that up with what Lou Gerstner did, the former CEO back in the 1990s. So he kind of transformed IBM um, into a new global services provider by saying, let's partner up with these software developers rather than compete against them in order to roll out these products. And now IBM is actually effectively doing exactly the same thing. So Ginny Ramidi is taking a page out of Lou Gerstner's playbook, and he was lauded as a Savior of IBM he saved it from the brink of bankruptcy so it's them trying trying to do a really similar thing again yeah,
4: fair. And, and as I said, I wish they would have been a little more open yeah. uh, years mm-hmm. ago. It would have helped their services business immensely. Mm-hmm.
1: Excellent. Great context from both of you. Anurag Ronick, Anurag excuse me, Senior Analyst of Software and IT Services at BI. Olivia Carvel is Technology Reporter following IBM for Bloomberg. Thank you both. Well, coming up, we're going to bring you more on that breaking news about the Carlisle Group. I love private equity. As you know, Taylor Riggs, Heather Pearlberg is going to join us. She had the scoop. Alright, well maybe private equity getting even a little more public here at Taylor Riggs. Big scoop crossing the Bloomberg terminal just a few minutes ago. Heather Pearlberg wrote it. It's about the Carlisle Group, one of the best known and biggest private equity firms, deciding to convert to a corporation. Sounds a little wonky, but Heather joins us from our nation's capital, where she's on the phone, to tell us what is up and why it matters. Hey, Hev. Hey, how are you? Alright, well, great scoop. So tell us why we care.
5: Well, uh, all the other big private equity firms have done it. We saw Ares, KKR, Blackstone, Apollo, and Carlisle was sort of the last holdout. Uh, earnings, they haven't announced them yet, but probably at the end of the month, are planning to announce that they, too, will be a C Corp.
3: Heather, walk me through why this C Corp. I've been scouring the Bloomberg, and with a C Corp, I believe you will be paying higher taxes, but you're hoping that the P.E. multiple expansion will compensate for that. We do know that Carlisle Group, and I'm looking at it here on the Bloomberg Terminal on a forward P.E. basis, indeed was the lowest, only trading at about 15 times relative to Blackstone, for example, at a 20 times forward P.E. ratio. Is that the rationale? How do you offset higher taxes?
5: Well, so the the corporate tax rate was slashed with the new tax law that was passed in December 2017. So that takes it from 35% all the way down to 21, which is a huge, huge change. So all these guys have done the calculation, and even with paying more taxes, they think that all the new investors, the pension funds, the foreign investors that are kind of loath to invest in partnerships will rush into the stock, and that will be enough to give them a boost.
1: Because it also gives them the ability to be in some indexes and some funds that it was prohibited from being in as a partnership, right, Heather?
5: Yes, absolutely. And it eliminates the K-1. So it simplifies things, it opens them up to a much broader base, ETF potentially, um, and they all think it's worth it. So,
1: And it has been worth it so far for a lot of their competitors, right?
5: Absolutely. We've seen a lot of the stocks jump. Blackstone's seen the most, 49% since they converted. Um, and a lot of these uh, founders have a great deal of personal wealth tied up in the shares too, so that can't hurt.
3: And Heather, why are they the last holdout? As you say, they're sort of one of the last of the major four to do so. What were some of the reasons why maybe there's a little bit more resistance perhaps on Carlisle's end?
5: I guess it's easy to say that Carlisle's kind of old school. I'm sure Jason would agree, Uh, but beyond that, it's logistically complicated. Uh, They've been looking at it for a long time. But I'm sure just operationally, they have to make sure all their ducks are in a row before they pull the plug and do this kind of thing.
1: Well, and it's an interesting moment in the history of these firms, right, Heather? You know, you mentioned a lot of the founders, many of them or a number of the big ones have handed over the reins. Carlisle, you know, being one of the primary examples there that, you know, Rubenstein, David Rubenstein, Bill Conway, Dan Daniello, they handed the CEO reins over to, you know, a, a couple of guys, Q Sung Lee and Glenn Youngkin at really more aggressively planning their succession, even than folks at, at KKR uh, and Blackstone. So it's interesting to see them be a little more, bit more forward thinking there while they were a little more conservative, as you say, on this C Corp.
5: Well, maybe that explains it, too, right, yeah. Jason? I mean, maybe they wanted the two new guys to kind of get their footing and smooth some things out before they focused on something complex like this structurally.
3: Well, and Jason, this is your wheelhouse, so correct me if I'm not understanding this. Now that you're a C-Corp, I'm a big pension fund, I get to invest in you because there's fewer restrictions. I'm effectively now being able to diversify my portfolio because if I'm investing in Carlisle, am I making a bet on private equity, real estate, infrastructure investing?
1: Well, yes. And I think, and and Heather, I think you would agree with this as well. It's a different sort of exposure than they are typically getting just as a limited partner. Uh, This is a liquid investment, obviously, because it's a public Traded uh, stock versus you know being locked up in a private equity fund or some sort of credit fund, and it's also interesting because there are a lot fewer liquid ways to invest in Carlyle these days, right,
4: Heather?
5: Absolutely. I mean, a lot of these firms are looking at different ways to let retail investors in. But right now, that exists more on the debt side and more at Blackstone, really, than anywhere else. So yeah, this is a great way for retail investors to get exposed to a firm that has few doors open for them otherwise.
1: Well, it's a great scoop. Carlisle converting to a C-corp. Their shares trading up about 5.7% on that news. And as Heather reported, it's one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg already, uh, that conversion set to, to be announced uh, when they announce earnings coming up probably later this month. Well,
3: and let's have Heather back on in a couple weeks or so because there's been talk of maybe repealing some of the tax codes. So yeah. she started off the conversation that they did the math. Higher tax rates were worth it because we just cut the corporate tax rate. That's repealed what, what happens.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the long-term effect of all of this is for Carlisle and the rest of the P.E. gang. I'm up on a one side well, safe to say, one. when Fed Chair Jay Powell heads to the Hill tomorrow, he's going to get a lot of questions about inflation and what he thinks about it, where it's going, Mm -hmm. and what effect that may have on his and his colleagues' decisions around interest rates. Let's get into that and much more with Doug Phillips. He is the Chief Investment Officer at the University of Rochester. He joins us on the phone from that fine city in upstate New York. And Janet Lauren also with us. She is endowments reporter for Bloomberg. She's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Doug, great to have you back with us. Glad to be here. Thanks. All right. So as you take a look at the landscape as a big global investor, you're going to be listening, I'm sure, to Jay Powell tomorrow and Thursday. You're going to be looking at those minutes. How are you feeling about inflation right now, and how does it affect your investment outlook?
6: Well, first of all, I love that you played the Leon Russell song uh, (laughs) up on the tightrope for the uh, intro. That's
1: all credit to our producer, Paul (laughs) Brennan, who you know well. He's a genius when it comes to that. Nice job. Nice
6: job. I I think that's that's what's happening. It's it's a pretty tight position here. I mean, we have had uh, these very low rates for a very long time, and now uh, with the talk of, of going lower... Off of it, what many people think is probably an unsustainably low uh, rate environment, uh, it's it's tricky because what's happened with these these low rates is most of the the, the creation of economic activity has been in the financial markets. Uh, the real economy has had some of it, but uh, you know the, the boosting of asset prices is is really astounding. And then you what happened with the, uh, the long bond when this was uh, being announced was a surprise and. Uh, you know, there's, there's concern now that the long bond is one of the riskier assets as we, uh, as we go into maybe a, even a lower rate environment. So there's all of this generally uh, from the research we're seeing and, and from money managers. Uh, this could be leading to inflation. And uh, that's the tight rope, tight wire that uh, I think policymakers are, are on. And if you look at history... Uh, there's this thing called inflation, inflation expectations and how it's built into pricing and that sort of thing. That typically uh, is a time when you don't want to own long bonds. Uh, it's typically a time when uh, equities start to uh, be repriced and in, into lower, sort of lower levels for longer periods and. What's interesting about this from my perspective is a lot of the people that run colleges and universities, including their endowments, haven't lived through an environment like that. And, uh, you know, we've had a 30-year, over 30-year uh, run in, in uh, bonds, and equities certainly have had decades now of, of amazing performance with a few blips along the way. But when you get into these protracted periods, and believe me, I'm not, I'm not a, a perma-bearer or anything like that, but I think you, you just have to put some historical perspective around this.
3: Doug, talk to me a little bit. When you talk about some of the risk within the long bond, We you take a look, you have a 30-year t- you know, treasury at, at a 253. Part of your investing for the long term is asset liability matching, duration matching. How do you do that when there is so much risk going out in a 30-year long bond?
6: I'm going to correct that. We don't actually engage in asset liability matching as an endowment. That's a a pension uh, construct that relates to actuarial assumptions and that sort of thing. And and in those cases, long bonds buy and hold uh, may be appropriate. But for endowments, uh, our uh, goal is to meet a spend rate and uh, perform well against the benchmark. And we can absorb some some near-term impact because of our spending being averaged over five years of uh, market value on the endowment. So, uh, that's a common misconception that asset liability matching is a, a factor for endowments. Uh, I do want to say that one of the one of your comments before was about gold. I heard your uh, announcer say that gold was up today. Uh, there's an interesting stat when you look at gold, uh, the price of gold, and where it is in relation to treasuries. And there's a ratio uh, that when a five-year ratio is exceeded, uh, you know, on a five-year moving average, uh, that's, a, that's a sign of inflation coming. And uh, one of our services pointed out that on June 18th, it's the first time in over a decade that that ratio broke uh, its five-year average. So it's a technical indicator, but, uh, you know, gold is up 12% for the uh, 12 months through June of, uh, of uh, 19. Uh, so it's it's an unusual environment, and I just think it's a time for being careful and looking at uh, perspective and looking at asset prices that have been influenced by low interest rates.
3: Well, going back to inflation, uh, why is it bad for colleges? Explain Terrible that. Terrible
6: for colleges, not just bad. Uh, typically, colleges are price takers. They, we don't have a lot of control over the inputs into our, our budget. So uh, energy and labor, You know, are, are, uh, even though we can cut uh, – some, it's very hard to, uh, uh, to reduce headcount at colleges and universities. And uh, not only that, but we have uh, you know, expenses related to capital improvements and capital maintenance. Uh, those all go up. And uh, back in the early 1980s, when I started my career, uh, there was an Ivy League school that had a billion dollars of deferred maintenance. <clears throat> it literally had this recorded on its balance sheet uh, because they couldn't keep up with the cost of maintaining their buildings. They, they worked their way out of it in the, in the 10 years after that. But uh, that was a very severe situation. And most places couldn't balance their budge- budgets. You, you can't pass on those costs and tuition increases.
1: And so, Doug, as you think about how you are allocating and and given what you're seeing from the Fed, given what you're seeing as it relates to inflation, does it change the mix at all? I know we've talked to you about alternatives before and and sort of how you look at the various asset classes that are there at your disposal. Yeah, well, uh, we want things that don't correlate to bonds
6: and, and stocks. And we want things that look undervalued in relation to their uh, long-term perspective, and, and gold was something we purchased last year, uh, a little over a year ago. That that was a good decision. It wasn't yeah. big enough to really drive our result, but interesting. It, it was a nice positive uh, return. And the things we then we stay away from things that are really overvalued. And we we do think the thirty-year uh, U.S. Treasury is overvalued. Uh, And uh, so we don't have any of that, no no long duration in our fixed income program.
3: So you just finished your fiscal year. I know it's very early for you to to have any results because you've got to wait for your private equity returns. But tell us a little bit, what are you thinking?
6: Uh, It's it's not just very early. It's impossible to to even forecast at this point, but I I can say that. Most universities, I believe, are going to have a positive return for the year, despite the uh, six-month period through December. That was really a a very negative period, as as you recall. Right. Uh, And then, obviously, June was a spectacular month for everything. uh, Uh And that, I think, took a lot of folks by surprise. We had a 10% return for our last fiscal year. We won't have a 10% return this year. It'll be below that. It'll be above zero. So. How's that? Somewhere
1: between zero and ten. Somewhere all right. Well, that but, well,
3: gives us some guidance. Thank at least you. Some
1: parameters there. All right, Doug Phillips, Chief Investment Officer up at the University of Rochester. That's where he joined us on the phone from. Always good to catch up with you. And always great to have Janet Lauren, Endowments Reporter, following all things education here for Bloomberg. She was here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. All right. Well, a very interesting and timely story on the Bloomberg today. It's part of the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It has to do with a train in Mexico that is a little bit controversial, a bit of a passion project for the relatively new president down there. Andrea Navarro, Mexico business reporter for Bloomberg, joins us on the phone from Mexico City. Joel Weber is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Joel, I want to start with you. Set this up for us. So uh, Andrea came to us
7: a while ago and was like, have you guys heard about this train that AMLO, the president of Mexico, wants to build across the Yucatan? And we were like, what? And that, I'm
3: sorry. How does that go? What? Oh, uh, but the, in Spanish. That's it.
7: actually the, the, the sound of the train. Yeah, yeah, Andrea, I don't know how you say that in Spanish. But yeah. I thought it was a really interesting look at Mexico right now because in part because of its infrastructure challenges and like the airport not so long ago was shot down by this guy and now instead of doing an airport it's like hey let's build a train through the jungle so
3: andrea you know i have to ask here what is the train expected to accomplish are people on board with it or they think this is just an expensive lofty adventure
0: Hi, thank you for having me. Um, well, I think that it's a little bit of both. I think that some people hope that this train will bring um, development and investment to a region that is very poor and that has been historically overlooked um, because mostly investments focus on the capital. Um, so nobody really invests there aside from hot spots like Cancun, um, which I'm sure you guys know. And the the... the At the same time, the project raises so many questions and I think that people are wondering if it's going to work. There's no study that proves demand is there for this train. Um, Some people think it's easier to just take a plane or take a car because you can do that at your own convenience and you don't have to wait for the train. So I think that the problem right now is that there are more questions than answers.
7: And how has it been received since the airport was the thing that, you know, there was so much progress on that until AMLO basically single-handedly uh, um, brought it down. So is this viewed as sort of a uh, a way to make up for something related to the airport?
0: Not at all. <laughs> I think that the, the, the airport was a big thing. I mean, it was one-third built already when it was canceled. And people are, are just scratching their head saying, well, why build this train when you had an airport um, as part of, I mean, if you're, if you're talking about infrastructure p- programs, why go with a, a, a train that sounds complicated and expensive when you had an airport that was already being built and already had funding, it was already funded. That's very important to remember. And the financing structure that they wanna use would be the same for the train that it was for the airport. So people are also wondering, like, why, who, who, who do you think is going to invest um, in a project that uses the same structure for the one that you already canceled? I, I oh, also think we, complicated. yeah,
7: totally. I also think we have to bring in a little bit of news, which is the the finance minister uh, today quit. Right. So yeah. what what how does that play into this?
0: Well, I think it adds a big element of uncertainty to it all. To be honest, this guy Carlos Ursua was. Uh, was trusted. He was seen as um, as a decent finance minister who tried to kept to keep things um, in line with what investors expect for Mexico. Um, and now that he quit, he quit with a letter on Twitter, as is the the fashion these days. Yeah, it seems like <laughs> and, the custom. <laughs> and it's very it's a dark letter. I mean, if you read it and and if you see the details, he's complaining about the policies that this government is, is taking. And and it, it does add an element of surprise, definitely. Now, the guy that has been named to replace him, Arturo, Arturo Herrera, um, is okay. I mean, the, the, the markets seem to like him. Um, he's very well educated. He has a good background. So let's hope that the change is not that, um, that crazy.
1: Well, and Andrea, only about 30 seconds left. But, I mean, sure. use that piece and your story that you wrote, I mean, it does tell us something about the politics of AMLO, right? And sort of the the underlying landscape politically and economically for Mexico right now.
0: For sure. And I think that people are not against any of these plans, like the, like the train, but they just want to see them being carried out well with studies and with like sound ideas and not just throw money at a project that might be canceled because nobody knew how to do it.
1: Well, and I I do feel like and and I wonder if you guys agree that I mean, this isn't the first time probably won't be the last that we see something that AMLO is saying or doing. And it reminds us of some of the things we see here uh, north of the border. You know, you end your story, Andrew, with a great quote from AMLO saying this is not just a whim or an imposition. It's an act of justice because the Southeast has been abandoned for too long. It's their time. You know, you do feel like that's something we could hear the president of the United States say. All right. Well, Andrea Navarro, Mexico business reporter, thank you so much for this great story. She joins us on the phone from Mexico City. And Joel Weber, editor, of course, of Bloomberg Business Week, he joins us every day around this time to bring us something cool from the magazine. This story you can read on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. And it'll be in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine.
5: I'm driving my car.
1: The drive to the close. That music will drive us till the dawn on Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. JJ Kennahan, Chief Market Strategist for TD Ameritrade, they oversee about $1.3 trillion. He joins us on the phone from Chicago. JJ, great to have you back with Taylor and myself. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. How's life out there in uh, Chicago? You having a nice summer so far?
8: Yeah, we're actually seeing some sunshine, so it's actually fun.
1: (laughs) Well, some sunshine uh, of a sort in the markets, it it feels like. I mean, we were talking with one of our guests earlier, actually somebody manages an endowment, You know, talking about the last six months of last year, the first six months of this year, a lot to feel better about, especially after that nice June. So what do you do from here?
8: Well, it is interesting that you talk about that because I think that the average person – is feeling pretty good about the market, although I would say that most people like yourselves reporting on the market, the guests who come on are just wringing their hands of, oh, my God, you know all the bad things that are going to happen. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things, though, I think, is we, we publish, uh, we call it our IMX, our Investment Movement Index, every month, and it measures people who actually made a trade in the month. So it's not people saying, this is what I'm going to do. Mm. It's people who actually did do something and what's interesting is for the first time since november of 2016 in june our clients were sellers of stocks and fixed income so we haven't seen them be full sellers of everything uh in that long a time and even after these great gains which which tells me a couple of things number one they they love the first six months and number two that they are a little bit afraid of some of the things that may be coming out here in the future be it tariffs uh, the Fed, or whatever it is, and the most interesting part of this was our clients, uh, Apple is the number one held stock at our firm, mm-hmm. and the clients are usually buyers of it. They were, it was the leading sell stock in the month of June. Wow. So just yeah, quite quite a, a lot of uh, things to get your arms around and really paints an interesting second half of 2019, in my opinion.
1: And what was their reasoning behind that? Was there consistent reasoning, or was it very... It wasn't consistent reasoning as much as it was a consistent
8: price. And that was when Apple breaks above $200, our clients become very aggressive sellers. And, you know, it broke, and in the third week of June, it went above $200. And from that point forward, our clients started really selling Apple. And so, again, you know, they've been accumulating it for a long time. So And on the buy side, and again, that $200 level, Tesla was a stock that our clients bought. And so it's interesting that, you know, 200 was the sell level for Apple, but Tesla, led by our millennial clients, by the way, on Tesla, that was a, a, an aggressive buy last month.
3: You know, JJ, I, I really like that you talked about the difference in people who are able to put their money to work and then some of the other commentators that we have on. And I was just sort of taking a look at the consensus estimate that we have. Right now, you have an SP at about 2980. The median. Year-end forecast is a 29.50. The mean is a 29.12. So most strategists and market predictors are assuming that the S&P has run its course and it can't go higher. If anything, it would stay or go lower. And you have Morgan Stanley cutting their stock allocation to a five-year low. BlackRock getting out of equities, uh, raising some cash, getting defensive, Do you stay invested in this market knowing that the year on price targets are lower than where we are now?
8: Well, I would never tell anybody they should be all the way in, all the way out, Taylor. But what I would say is that you, A, may want to be more cautious. I think the real wild card, and again, something I know you guys talk about regularly, is tariffs. Because, you know, as long as we continue to kick the can, in my opinion, that keeps us range-bound. I think we are at the high end of the range right now. But, uh, you know, with earnings, we'll see what happens. But if you think about it, people are a little reluctant to buy at these levels because we are, you know, near all-time highs. But on the low side, nobody wants to really sell with both hands, if you will, just in case it gets settled. The old uh, FOMO, I guess, uh, as people would say, keeps us a little range-bound on the downside Teller, So I think that that being removed would be the uh, biggest thing that might change people's estimates, but all being as it may I I don't think those are those are bad estimates although I would say some may be a little bit low I think you know the 29 30 to 3100 and I know it's a little bit of a wider range but I just feel we are range bound for the rest of the year because of this if we did settle tariffs favorably it might serve as another rate cut also, so to speak, because it might give some thick juice to the market. So there's a few interesting things going on that I think could change people's estimates pretty quickly. Uh, Again, I would say that you want to have a core position that's, probably less sensitive. All stocks will be affected either way if something happens on tariffs, but some that are perhaps less directly affected.
1: And JJ, you know, let's talk a couple more names. Pepsi obviously is very much front of mind for a lot of folks today. Seemed like a good result. Commentary seemed positive. Stocks trading off a little bit, you know, down about half half of a percentage point at this point in the trade. Looks like it's going to close lower. What do you see there? It seemed like, you know, the snack business, especially look pretty strong?
8: Yeah, you know, it, it, it's a little bit tough to make out why the stock is is getting hurt because, to your point, if I look at how they uh, get their revenue, they get 39.6% of their revenue from Frito-Lay. It's the number one source of revenue for the company. That performed so well. It was unbelievable. Now, on the beverages, which is their second uh, source of revenue in North America, it's about t- 22% of the revenue. As you know, the water was pretty good. Some yeah. of the sweet beverages stumbled a little bit, and I think that that's you know the part of their business that they still there's some question marks around. Uh, will you know Coca-Cola will be interesting when they come out and talk about theirs. They break theirs down a little bit more to specifically water versus specifically their their uh, soda products. But uh, I, I think that that's the part that people question is, can you grow the snack business enough worldwide to make up for what you might be losing on some of these sweetened drinks?
1: 30 seconds left. Uh, cannabis, speaking of uh, some of those consumer names, Canopy had some news last week. Is that a stock you guys still like?
8: So it's interesting in that, you know, our, our, again, our millennial clients like Uber. Yeah, Can, a canopy growth in Tesla. I guess you know, buy what you know. Right, right. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, I, although the stock's been volatile, there remain uh, there remains a strong interest in it because people see what could be the potential growth. The only thing I would warn is to get all fifty states. I think that right. that's a longer process than most people believe it will be
1: in order for it to be legalized fully. Long haul for sure. Are you a Cubs or White Sox guy, JJ?
8: Well, I grew up right near Wrigley Field, but I was raised right some White Sox man.
1: Wow! All right. Well, that's a bold call, bold call. All right, JJ Kenahan, chief Thanks. market strategist for TD Ameritrade. They oversee about 1.3 trillion dollars. He joined us on the phone from Chicago. Always good to catch up with him. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.